Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, let's go. First Timothy chapter 1 is where we find ourselves. We're finishing up the first half of this first chapter of Paul's letter to Timothy as we started working through it last week. And we're going to finish up the first chapter. As I said, if you don't have a Bible, as always, we'd love for you to use one of the Bibles in the chair rack in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, as always, that's our gift to you. Keep that, read it, come back, and hear from God's Word. And I think although we will have the scriptures on the screen, I think it would really be helpful for you to see God's Word for yourself. So I encourage you to open it up. Uh, follow along with us. Our, our habit here is to the vast majority of the time just work our way through books of the Bible and make the point of the message the point of the passage. And so this morning we're just going to really work through this verse by verse and see what God, God's Word says to us. Now this text today, the second half of First Timothy, is it's, it's so beautiful, it's so clear, it's, it's one of those texts, especially verse 15, where it seems to be a kind of microcosm of the whole Bible itself. Every now and again there are just statements, sentences, verses in the Bible that seem to summarize the whole point of Genesis to Revelation, the whole point of God's work, the whole point of creation. And this is one of those verses. So... Today we're just gonna we're gonna throw a batting practice fastball right down the middle of the plate, and we're gonna take a, a swing at it and see what the Lord may do. And and on another note, this text is is so intensely personal for me because uh, when I first became a Christian or first heard the gospel clearly preached when I was 18 years old, it was March of 1989. And then shortly after that, I found myself in a church plant in Highland Falls, New York, right outside the gates of the military academy where I was a student. I was exposed to a young pastor who seemed so old. He was in his mid-30s, and he had planted a, he had planted a church. He was so old and wise, and he had an awesome beard, and his wife was Italian and cooked us pasta every Sunday, and it was, uh, it was wonderful. Um, but uh, I felt in that little church plant a sense of God's calling into ministry. And this text is one of the first texts in the Bible that I read. And even, I don't even know if I was really truly regenerated at that point. But the Lord, through His Holy Spirit, was beginning to call me. And, and this text is, is part of the Lord's uh, work in that aspect of my life. So let me, let me read it, and then we'll pray, and then we're just going to work our way back through it. Friends, these are glorious words. And this is God writing through a man, the Holy Spirit carrying Paul along to write these words to a young pastor who's pastoring a church in Ephesus, from which we later get the letter to Ephesians that Paul writes. And these are the very words that our triune God intended to be handed over through the centuries to us today. Verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. 
Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. In accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Well, let's pray. Lord, what a mountain peak of the scriptures this passage is especially verse 15 where it says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners for those of us that know and believe and are putting our hope in that truth and have received it by your grace may we see it afresh and may it melt our hearts and may the pinnacle of that theology move us to worship you more passionately and for those of this those in this room who are not yet trusting in Christ would you do what only you can do can you would you give the gift of faith and repentance so that unbelievers would see and savor and put their hope in Jesus and be saved Lord we pray that you do this all for the glory of your name for the good of your people, for the salvation of anybody that is not trusting in Christ in this room. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So verse 15 is, as I said, one of the, the peaks of Scripture. And I want us to settle down on that text and then look at Paul's response to the truth of that text. But before we do that, let's just mention and pay attention to a few things that precede verse 15 where Paul is really breaking into thankfulness for God's calling him into ministry and he says there in in verse 12 he says I thank him who has given me strength Christ Jesus our Lord because he judged me faithful and he's put me in his service even though I was formerly a blasphemer an opponent of God if you're not familiar with Paul's ministry and life you can read this afternoon In Acts chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul, before he was converted, was an opponent of the gospel, an opponent of Christ. In fact, he was such an opponent of Christ that his unbelief led him zealously to defend the Jewish faith that he did not understand was the precursor to and leading his people to Christ. And he was thinking that Jesus was opposed to 
his Old Testament that he was standing on, and he went so far as to take part in the, not just the persecution, but the execution of Christians. And at the end of Acts, Acts chapter 8, we see Paul there at the, the stoning of Stephen, one of the early disciples, and Paul there is, is consenting to it and holding the coats of the people that are throwing stones to kill Stephen, this early witness and disciple of Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 9, as Paul was once again uh, headed off on a journey to persecute Christians on the road to Damascus, Jesus makes a return visit from heaven, knocks him off his horse, roughs him up, causes him to go blind, and says, why are you persecuting me? Stop it. Now preach my gospel to the people that I have called you to. And Paul is reflecting on this and There's this sort of maybe potentially confusing sentence in there where it says at the end of verse 13 that I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And we may be tempted to think that Paul is saying that the reason that God saved him was because somehow he was ignorant of who Jesus was. And if that were the case, if that was the only thing that the Bible said about what our salvation hinged on, then it might push us to think, well, we shouldn't, we shouldn't preach the gospel to anybody that hasn't heard about Jesus because if they just stay in their unbelief, then God will give them a pass. But clearly, as we let the Bible interpret the Bible and we read the rest of the Bible, we know that certainly that is not what Paul means because we read in other parts of the scripture where Paul, in fact, in Romans chapter 1 where he says that, that all of humanity... Even the Gentiles, he's reflecting on in Romans chapter 1, who don't have God's special revelation of his word like he gave the Jews in the Old Testament. He says all humanity should be able to look at creation and should understand that there is a God and be drawn to him. But sin has so clouded us that we are unaware that we reject God. We actively reject God. And Paul is saying in Romans 1 that all humanity is without excuse. And so Paul's point here in 1 Timothy 1 verse 13 is not that somehow he was unaware of who Jesus was and God gave him a pass. But he, I think, as we will read towards the end of this chapter, he is reflecting on And really using his life as a comparison to these two Christians, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who were seemingly followers of Jesus, in fact, teachers and preachers and leaders in the church, who then had turned on the gospel and had rejected Christ. And Paul is making a comparison there about his call to ministry and their ministry, which they have rejected. And he's saying, hey, at least I didn't even know about Jesus and God appointed me, sovereignly put his hand on me, and gave me grace, not because of anything good in me, but simply because of his purposes in me, which Paul then later goes on to describe. And he's comparing himself to Hymenaeus and Alexander, who were these two Christians, evidently, who seem to outright reject God, and he is issuing really a severe rebuke. So I don't think what Paul is saying there is that somehow ignorance gives us a pass. He's saying that God was gracious And then we see that amplified in verse 15. Let's get to it. I just want us to stare at verse 15 for a moment. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world 
to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. The first thing I want us to see in that sentence as we just stare at this, this really this mountain peak of Scripture, is those words, Christ Jesus came. He's, he's not just a mere human. He wasn't just born, but the, the clear inference is there that Jesus came from somewhere, and Jesus is the eternally pre-existent Son of God. No beginning, no end. Fully God and fully man. Listen to what the Bible says about Jesus in his pre-incarnation state. It didn't just, he wasn't created. He didn't show up. It's not God the Father reacting to things gone wrong, choosing a person to be his son, and then making him this good example. No, even before creation, you have a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Listen to John 1. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, meaning Christ, the Son, is also God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So Christ Jesus doesn't just show up on the scene as a reaction to sin, but we have this picture of a triune God, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is where it gets mind-blowing. God isn't even in time reacting to sin and saying, oh, we, we've got to do something now, uh, Son and Holy Spirit. Let's, let's, let's come up with a plan for what has happened to our creation. This idea that sin has come in and, 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 and thrown God's creation into despair. No, even before God created the world, he planned for the fall of the world and the redemption of the world. At the end of the Bible, we read where this description of Jesus, that he is the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, we read about God's grace and salvation where he says that he, meaning the Father, has set his love. He's predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ before the foundations of the earth. And so I just, as we stare at this, we see this picture of God who even before he created a world that he knew would fall, has made a covenant with himself to save it. <laughs> now, uh, some crazy things are about to happen in our world. Crazy things are happening now. And crazy things are about to happen. Unpredictable things are about to happen. Terrorists seem to be doing wicked and evil things. Some of you will get a diagnosis from a doctor in the coming weeks and months whether it's you or a loved one, that may seem like it is spiraling out of control. Some of you are raising kids, and raising kids is so stinking unpredictable and heart-wrenching. You'll think you're cruising along, and then your child will do something, and you will wonder what planet they came from. And it will wreck your life as a parent because it seems so unpredictable and the future seems so uncertain. And on the first Tuesday of November, somebody's going to be elected as the next president of the United States. And uh, <laughs> either one. Uh, 
And it will cause us to wonder whether or not God is superintending this little glob of dirt that is rotating around the sun. And over and against all of the unpredictability and uncertainty that we face now and will face in the future, no matter what life holds, we see this picture of God who has not only planned for but ordained the rescuing from the fall before it even happened. Let that be a firm foundation upon which we stand today. And then it says there that this Christ Jesus, God, the pre-eternal, always, no end son, came into the world. So God became flesh. Now listen carefully, especially maybe if, if you have never heard the great clear hope of the gospel. Maybe you're investigating what it means to be a Christian or what the Bible is about or maybe you kind of grew up on the edges of it and you have this preconceived notion that to be a Christian is to kind of clean yourself up and try harder to do better and then maybe if you're relatively good enough compared to everybody else, God will accept you and if you just sort of follow the teachings of this wonderfully ethical and good-hearted man, Jesus, that you will be good enough. Maybe that's the teaching that you've heard. And nothing could be further from the truth. You need to hear this. This Christ Jesus, this this man, fully God, fully man, the Son of God, came into the world. So God becomes man. And listen to what the writer of Hebrews, how he describes Jesus in his incarnation, meaning his taking on flesh. That's what that word incarnation means. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he, meaning Jesus, had to be made like his brothers, that's us, in every respect. So he became fully human. Think of that. He, he was born in a humble manger. He was born as a baby that was completely dependent on his mother's milk and on his surroundings to care for him and to grow him into a young man. God, the same God that we read in John chapter 1, created the world, became subject to his very creation so that he could completely identify us. So that, let's keep reading in Hebrews 2, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make, and here is this all-important word that you just have to understand, to make propitiation, I'll explain it in a moment, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So what's this verse saying? It's saying that Christ Jesus, fully God, became fully man, never stopped being fully God, took on humanity, became like us in every way, but yet without sin. If we flip to Hebrews chapter 4, at the end of that chapter, we'll see that Jesus became like us in every way, yet without sin. And he did this so that he could make propitiation. What does that word propitiation mean? It means that Jesus became a substitute, a sacrifice for us, that Jesus, 
laid down his perfect law-abiding life on the cross to bear the wrath of God against all those that had rebelled against him and would turn to him in faith and repentance. And Jesus, because he's not just a good man, but because he is the eternally holy son of God, God himself in the flesh, has enough holiness. In fact, his holiness is infinite. He has enough holiness to satisfy the wrath of God against all of the sin that has ever been committed, past, present, and future. And so this word propitiation means that Jesus bears God's wrath and extinguishes it and satisfies it. It's gone. That's why Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 says that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because if you're trusting in Christ, Jesus has bore God's wrath for you. But that's only half of the word of propitiation. Jesus not only satisfies the wrath of God and removes it and extinguishes it and takes our punishment for us, the other half of that word propitiation is not just that he removes wrath, but he gives or he imputes or he credits his righteousness to his people. Right, so you've heard of me, you've heard me make fun of that little bumper sticker that sometimes Christians have where it says that, um, Christ, and if you have it, I'm so, I'm so sorry. Maybe you could just hang around after service and wait till all of the other cars leave, and then you could just kind of drive off. Um, and uh, in fact, I think one time Paul Fincher, years ago, when I used to mention this a lot, Paul, I think, found this bumper sticker, and he actually put it on my truck. Didn't you do that? And so I was just lambasting the theology of this bumper sticker as I was riding around for several months, not unaware that it was on my truck. (laughs) But this little bumper sticker says, Christians aren't perfect. They're just forgiven. Now, if that's all that the gospel promised, that would be good enough. But it's not just that. It's not just that our sins have been atoned for, but the other half of the idea wrapped up in this word propitiation is that Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' perfection, Jesus' law-abiding is given to us as the Holy Spirit indwells and brings back to life the heart of a dead sinner, and now they are in Christ. They are enveloped, they are covered, they bear, they wear his righteousness, and thou, now God has promised, even though that moment of salvation, we don't feel very righteous. I mean, come on, the moment you become a Christian, it's not like all of a sudden you're just perfect. Now, the rest of the Christian life is this process called sanctification, whereby you are becoming who you already are in Christ Jesus, and God, in his preserving kind grace, is got you in this riptide of grace where he is pulling you deeper and deeper out into making you who you already are in Christ, because Christ's righteousness has already been imputed to you. It is a, an unstoppable Unstoppable work of grace in the heart of God's true children. And that's what this verse is saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
not people that grew up in church and have got a little VBS in them. Not people who had parents that read the Bible to them regularly. All those things are wonderful. Come to VBS and parents read the Bible to your children. But he says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save wicked people, which by the way, regardless of whether or not we grew up in church or not, is how we all start out. Right? All of us are born alive in one sense, but spiritually dead. In fact, the Bible says this in Ephesians chapter 2. It says that we all by nature are children of wrath. We are dead in our sin. Now, I don't recommend that next time you go to the hospital to visit a friend that has had a baby, that you stare at that little child and say, so cute, what a dead little sinner. (laughs) But friends, every now and again, we should think about the fact that like we're not born Christians, are we? We are born rebels and God in his grace should, God in his grace gives us life. He makes us alive. So this should produce in us great hope. It should humble the self-righteous and it should encourage the downtrodden. In fact, I I think this is an obstacle for many people. Especially maybe in more religious areas of our culture, because oftentimes where there's more religious areas of our culture, there's this sort of wicked false gospel that creeps in that says, you know, if you kind of can play the game and do your thing and show up every now and again and sort of talk the lingo, you're kind of, you can give the appearance that you're made right with God just by kind of, you know, if you comport yourself in an outward sort of way. And that's just a, that's just a wicked sort of subtle justification or salvation by works. And that is not the gospel. We are all sinners. And Paul says that he was the foremost. Now, I don't think Paul was clearly the most wicked person who ever lived, but I think that Paul was so enamored with and absorbed by the holiness of God that as he was staring at the beauty and the holiness of God and his work and his son, Jesus, on the cross, in light of that, he just was more aware of his own sin than your average person. And it caused him to say that I'm the most wicked guy I know. And yet, for even Paul, God gave his grace. Listen, listen to what Spurgeon says about this. If you are a person who is maybe thinking that God can't save somebody like you, Maybe you're good at playing a religious game, but there's some like really deep thing deep within you, some secret deal that you just, you know, if, if, if everybody knew that, uh, there's no way that, that I could really be a faithful Christian. In fact, that's maybe what's keeping you back from really trusting in Christ. Listen to what Spurgeon says, Charles Spurgeon. He was, a, I, I assume like everybody knows who he is, and there's new people coming all the time. Charles Spurgeon was a Baptist pastor back in London, back in the mid-1800s. Uh, a couple of things you need to know about him. He was wonderful theologically. He was probably the greatest preacher since the Apostle Paul. He had a, an awesome beard. Um, he, before you know, computers, he wrote volumes and volumes, or 63 volumes of his sermons. He preached, he became the pastor of a church in London in the, when he was like, like 17 years old. 
He preached, he died early because he just wore himself out for the gospel. Had the largest church in the world at the time. Uh, just an incredible man, used of God, and, and, as, and as jovial and as charismatic and as wonderful as Charles Spurgeon was, he was a man that was acquainted with great sorrow and grief. In fact, when he was 21 years old, uh, he was preaching so, uh, so uh, uh, fruitfully that they rented out like a music hall for, uh, to hold church services in this music hall, and um, some, just some jokesters in the, the auditorium that he was preaching a Sunday service at yelled out fire just maliciously, and six people were, were trampled and killed when he was 21 years old, and he, he never recovered from that. He, he went into a deep depression that really, in many respects, he never recovered from. In fact, the verse of the Bible that he was preaching on during that service was a scripture out of Proverbs, and as, as some biographers say, that Spurgeon never read that text of the Bible again because it brought him such sorrow. He was a man acquainted with grief, acquainted with his own sin, but used by God in marvelous ways. I don't know why I went on that rabbit trail. I was just wanting you to know a little bit about my historical hero, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who we affectionately call Uncle Chuck. Listen to this. For those of you that think that there's something that you have done that somehow is beyond the reach of God's grace... May I therefore urge upon any who have no good thing about them, who fear, (laughs) who fear that they have not even a good feeling or anything whatever that can recommend them to God, to firmly believe that our gracious God is able and willing to take them without anything to recommend them and to forgive them spontaneously, not because they are good, but because he is good. (laughs) Friends, that's the gospel. Don't nurse your past or your failures in the past or even your present as a way of making yourself feel like you are doing something religious as if your constant feelings of guilt somehow appease God. You are unwittingly trying to justify yourself by guilt. That's the opposite of the gospel, dear friend. Christ Jesus came into the world to save wicked people. And we are all, in our core, wicked people. This is wonderful news. He saves us not because we are good, but because he is good. Let's keep going. Verse 16, look at this and look at the reason that Paul finds for his salvation, for God's grace in him. Verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul is saying that, listen, the reason God saved me is so that through me he might display his glory to an onlooking world. I just jotted down a few things here about the application for the Christian life. Is that that God does not intend for us to be a kind of 
cul-de-sac of his saving grace, but he he intends for us to be a a conduit. And, And what does this look like? It means that we as Christians are put into a community so that we can be examples and encouragements to one another. In fact, that is exactly why when we have people get into that baptismal pool there, that we don't just sort of dunk them and let them go out. We, we have them write their testimony and have somebody read it because I can't tell you how many times. In fact, just recently we had a brother that was baptized and, and he's telling me about how many people have been coming up to him and saying how encouraged they were as they heard about his life before Christ and what Christ has done. And, and he is being obedient to the gospel and letting his life be an example to people that God has put him around in community to be an encouragement. Friends, that's what life in community is. And, and that's why we are to do life together in a local church. And people are to get to know you. And people are to bear with one another. And, and you know, some of us kind of stay on the fringes of community because we realize that being around people is difficult. <laughs> You're right. You're right. But <laughs> somebody said glory. But do you realize that when we stay kind of on the edge of really being known. Verse 16 has no application in our life. We're cutting off God's divine purposes and the salvation of his people. Paul Paul doesn't say, I received mercy for this reason, that God loved me so much that he wanted me on his team. No, he says, I received mercy for this reason. As the foremost, Christ Jesus might, through me, use my salvation as a means to bring about somebody else's encouragement or salvation. Maybe some of you kind of grew up in a, a sort of sappy, sentimental culture where maybe you heard a line, and I, I, I think I've even said things like this before, not here, but in the past, where God's love is so great that, that even if you were the only person who ever lived... Jesus would have gone to the cross for you. Have you ever heard that said? We've all kind of heard that and we're like, oh, yes, you know, yes, yes, yes. I love you too, Jesus. Right? And I understand the sentiment. I do. I think Jesus loves us in, in ways far even deeper than that. But do you see how unwittingly when we look at the cross, we instinctively make ourselves the center and as the object of primary affection. When what Paul is doing here is he is making our salvation a means to an end of the glory of God. Do you see that? That is so important. That is so un-American. God loves me so much that he sent his son to die Just for me. And that is true if then we tag along on that sentence for the display of his glory to an onlooking world. And friends, there is something beautiful about not being the center of attention. 
There's something freeing about that and there is something really satisfying about that when you are absorbed in the glory of another and not yourself, right? Because when does self-glorification actually satisfy it? It never does. We just want more of it and we become like that little creepy little thing on Lord of the Rings that just wants more, more, more of this little ring. And I know I probably messed up that illustration I'm going to get emails from all of the Lord of the Rings people and tell me how I, but whatever, you know what I'm talking about. Paul says that God did this in his life, not because he was the end or the terminus of God's affections, but because it was a means towards displaying his glory to an onlooking world. Friends, that is far more satisfying than being the end of God's affection. So do community, man. Be be baptized. Give glory to God. Make God's glory the aim of our life and our our church, not ourselves. And then he says in verse 18, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. And I love this verse. I love it because I am... Uh, I was about to say a young pastor. I'm not (laughs) a young pastor anymore. When I started, when we started this church, I was a young pastor. Um, I'm a middle-aged pastor now. I don't like that phrase, middle-aged, but the other day, a couple months ago, my son, one of them, called me middle-aged, and I said, I'm not middle-aged, and they said, well, you're halfway to 90. (laughs) I said, oh, I am (laughs) middle-aged. Yesterday I was in Lowe's, and I I need reading glasses for to read, but I'm starting to, I think, need glasses just to walk. (laughs) Because I was in Lowe's, and I ran into Will Hawk, and he was coming down the aisle, and I heard my name. And I recognized it to be Will's voice. And I looked at this fuzzy figure in a red shirt moving towards me. And I said, on faith, I am assuming that that is Will Hawk. And it was. And I couldn't see him. (laughs) He's saying to this young pastor, wage the good warfare. Hold on to faith and good conscience. Grab a hold of it. God has done this work in you, Timothy. There were these prophecies made about you. God called you by His grace. He's not going to lose you. But the way that He is not going to lose you is by giving you the grace, the grit, the ability to do things that preserve yourself. And then he contrasts this against these two men who are walking away from the faith. He says, Timothy, you hold on. You cling to God's grace, holding faith with a good conscience. Do life in community. Be known. You weren't saved just for yourself. You were saved to display God's glory. Now you're going to have to fight. Doesn't this explain so much? Come on, we've been, 
We've been talking about God's sovereignty and his power and the fact that even before he creates the creation that he knows is going to fall, he makes a covenant with himself to save that creation, which leads me to believe that God is completely in control. He's completely in control. And God, who is completely in control, works out the unfolding of his control, not by hitting the fast forward button in Timothy's sanctification, but by through this older man, Paul, exhorting him to wage the good warfare. To fight the fight that I have guaranteed that you will win. Do you you see the the combination of truths here? That God is telling Timothy, fight this fight. Hold on with a good conscience. In other words, I'm sovereign, God is saying. You are eternally secure in me. And the way that I will bring about eternal security in you is not by zapping you over the head and causing you not to face difficulty, but by allowing you to wrestle with this broken world and empowering you and enabling you and giving you a community of people and giving you the gospel and giving you my word and giving my Holy Spirit that dwells within you to wage the good war that I have guaranteed that you will win, that you must necessarily fight. Friends, that, that is the Christian life right there. And he contrasts it with these two men, and he ends with this warning. He says, Hold faith and good conscience by rejecting this. Some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. And then listen to verse 20. Whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, what's going on in this text as we, as we land this plane? Well, evidently, there were these two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who were leaders, teachers, at least certainly thought to be Christians in the church, who were rejecting Christ, walking away from him, blaspheming him. And Paul is saying that you, that I am going to hand these people over to Satan. What does that mean? Does Paul march to a certain little corner of the city and have a little prisoner exchange with Satan? No. I think that means that Paul sees life in this earth so starkly that there is the kingdom of God that is manifested by the local church and then there's the kingdom of the prince of the power of this air outside of Christ. So for Paul, there are only two kingdoms. There are only two types of people in the world. Those who are in Christ and those who are out of Christ. Those who are in Christ have been, as he says in Colossians chapter 1, transferred from the domain of darkness and put into the kingdom of his son whom he loves. As it's pictured and represented by the local church here on this earth until the kingdom that is coming finally fully establishes and vanquishes all evil. And then outside of the community of faith, God's people, those who are not trusting in Christ, 
is the kingdom of darkness, and that is controlled by Satan. And so when Paul says, I'm handing these guys over to Satan, he's not marching to a particular place in the city and doing this exchange. He's speaking metaphorically about how he is putting these people out of the believing community. He's saying that we as a church no longer can validate your testimony, and so we are putting you out. Friends, that is un-American. Putting you out. But notice why. Not because he's a fundamentalist, fire-breathing, Bible-thumping dragon. He's putting him out so that something redemptive would happen in them that maybe by being put out of the community of faith, God would use that as like an ammonia underneath their nose so that they would learn something, realize the severity of their error, and learn not to blaspheme and turn back to God. So I want you to get this picture and we end on this. God, Paul sees Satan as a mere tool in God's sanctification. We were looking at this verse as pastors and reading over it uh, on Tuesday at our staff meeting, just kind of thinking about what it said and brainstorming it. And I think it was Will who said, it's like Satan is a tool in God's toolbox to accomplish his means. And I think that's exactly what this text is saying. I'm handing you over to Satan So that God might use Satan as a chisel to bring about repentance in you. So that you will learn something to come back. And you might realize that you, like me, are a sinner. And that God is sufficient and good and able to save. And he does it for not our good alone. But for his glory. Friends, let's be people who revel in that truth. Let that truth melt our hearts and warm our hearts to be more passionate in our life for him. And if you are not a believer and you came into this room, you've heard the truth of the gospel. Christ Jesus came to save people like you not based on whether or not you can clean yourself up, but because He is good. And if you are hearing that message, I believe that is evidence that God, by His Holy Spirit, is drawing you, making you alive, giving you the gifts that you need to respond, giving you faith, giving you repentance, so that you can turn and trust and say, Ah, behold, the Lamb of God, who died to save sinners like me, who bore the wrath of God that should be mine and gave me his righteousness, if I will trust in him, do that even now, dear friend. Let's pray. Father, what a, what a beautiful text and truth. May it melt the heart of the self-righteous. May it warm the heart of Christians who have become cold. And may it bring back to life the heart of a dead sinner.
as we gaze at the beauty of this great truth that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.